Well, growing up, one of the uh, most formative aspects of my childhood, I didn't realize it at the time, but as I look back, uh, as I get a little bit older, is, is that in my childhood, I had a, a kind of unique opportunity to, to know all of my great-grandparents, or to know uh, the, the grandparents which my parents had known, at least. And I had the privilege of being able to watch my parents grieve the death of their grandparents, right? I had the the opportunity to watch my grandparents grieve the death of their parents. And in particular, uh, there was three grandmothers who, three great-grandmothers who lived there in the same town as as I did. And, And they lived long enough into my childhood or even in, into my adulthood uh, <clears throat> that I got to, to watch their lives, to watch this last chapter, uh, right? Or, or if you'll permit me a little uh, preacher's hope, right? To, to watch the end of uh, the preface, right? Because their life had not yet really started. But there was Grandma Hoagie, there was Gigi, and there was Grandma Martin. All lived in uh, in Peoria area with me. All of whom we, we would go and, and we would visit them. They all lived alone in their various places. But in particular, Grandma Hoagie kind of stood out. Grandma Martin and, and Gigi already lived in a, in a condo that was, you know, a, a part of an assisted living complex. And so their last chapter began in my memory and ended in my memory all in thin one building. There wasn't a lot of, of change, right? It was shifting of rooms, but Grandma Hoagie was different. In my memory as a child, she was a 90-plus-year-old woman who, who lived life. She was the most active. She lived in her own home still. We could go visit her in her place where all of her old possessions still surrounded her. And we could see where she would go as, as a 92-year-old woman out to, to tend her own tomatoes, right? Her, her own vehicle, her own uh, mobility. She seemed uh, always to be put together, right? My image, my memories of her, her image is, is almost unchanged. She always had her, her makeup done and her, her lips always popped in a bright color of lipstick. Her hair was always perfectly formed, uh, perhaps maybe like too perfectly formed, and that I never picked up on. She wore big, gaudy earrings, and she was on the move until she wasn't, right? Maybe that's why her death was so pronounced, because as you know, if you have watched anyone walk the last season of life, death is not one loss but a whole bunch of losses, a series of losses, right? As our, our physical worlds condense, right? As our social worlds condense, as our emotions are cut off from people and the places and the memories that provided them, as our uh, connections to, to friends and to family and to children is, are broken and severed, death is a long process, even when it is instantaneous. Death is a series of losses. I almost think of of a a really complex spider web, right? uh, Maybe you did this as a child. 
but sometimes in the morning I'd awake and I'd come outside and there'd be this enormous spider web and the, and the sunlight coming through would catch it just the right way so that you could see all the many strands that were connected all over. Uh, and, and you as a child, uh, perhaps a little cruelly to the poor spider, right? I would start playing with it, right? And I'd, I'd prick off one strand and watch the net collapse a little bit. I'd prick off another and watch the tensions shifted away. I'd prick off another and another and another, work my way around, and, and this unique and beautiful tapestry suddenly collapses into a ball that is hangling and dangling and eventually is uninhabitable of a space. And so it is was with Grandma Hoagie. All right, the day came when, when her strength failed her. And she fell there in the garden, and, and, and like a, 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 a child pricking a spider's web, all that autonomy, all that mobility was taken away from her. A few more places and, and pricks and falls, and, and, and all of a sudden, her home was not her home anymore. Her possessions were not hers to enjoy, her memories and photographs, the furniture that she had come to know life by was taken away from her as she was relegated to a place and a spot where she could receive the kind of medical care that she needed. I remember uh, going to, to visit her uh, there in the, in the uh hospital or assisted care facility, I don't really remember which, but what I do remember is that this woman of, of great dignity, a woman who was always put together, I walked into this room and the lady lying in the bed was not the grandmother that I knew. For the first time in my life, it dawned on me that she wore a wig because that perfectly covered, the perfectly shaped hair was nowhere to be seen. She looked weak. She didn't have her jewelry. She didn't have her makeup, her dignity. The, the way that she wanted to present herself to the world had been plucked away from her one by one. And perhaps most sadly, she didn't even seem to notice what had been taken away from her. And her family, her friends, many of whom, of course, like anyone who lives to see their 90s, had had lost many strands of connections, many relationships of people that they loved. Right long ago, she had buried two husbands, right? She'd buried children and grandchildren. She'd buried innumerable friends. But there came the day when, when the, the, the family members assembled to say their goodbyes. And I wasn't there to be a part of that moment, but I don't know that I'll forget the, the somberness that dad came home with when he came to tell us that grandma had breathed her last. Because the last strand to be broken is that dying breath and the separation of, of the spirit and the body as they are, are separated uh, unlike God intended and her spirit left her body, and she, her life was no more. You see, death is an unwebbing of, of many, many things. It's not just the deterioration of a body. And for most of us, we've experienced some taste of this, some connection to 
this, this unwebbing, these series of losses, and we grieve them, and we mourn them, and we, but we cannot stop them, and we cannot avoid them. They are all the proof that we need, that, that we are a people who live under a curse. We are a people who live in a world that does not function the way that it was intended, the way that it was designed. We live in a place that has been cursed. And the consequences of that curse is the death, the deaths that we experience in life, the losses that we experience in life. And so we grieve each strand, each loss, each death as it occurs. In this text, we come to, to a story of a man who breathes his last breath. We come to a story of a man whose, whose life's web is plucked, strand at a time, away from him. We see him wilting and collapsing, his life becoming slowly uninhabitable. But there is something different about this man because, as John has already convinced us, he didn't need to be there. We cannot stop these losses, but he could have. There was numerous off-ramps that he could have chosen, but he allowed the strands of his life to be taken away from him. And so when we come to this text, the, the first question we got to ask is, why? Why didn't he stop what he could have stopped? Why didn't he avoid what he could have avoided? Why didn't he get away from this tragic curse that was finding him there? And our first point this morning is that Jesus didn't stop it because Jesus chose to experience our curse. Jesus chose to live out our curse. As I said, the off-ramps have been many for Jesus, right? We watched Jesus come into Jerusalem where he knew he would die, and yet he came riding on a donkey. We watched Jesus who knew at the Last Supper that as he walked to the garden, as he talked to Judas, that his life, his arrest was about to happen. And yet he let Judas walk away from him and he went to the garden where he was to be arrested. Jesus, we're, we're shown and illustrated, he had a power and authority that makes the soldiers fall down, but he doesn't run away. He has followers who are willing to fight, but he tells them to put their sword away. He has angels that he commands, the other gospel writers tell us, and yet he chooses not to call on them. Jesus chose to be in the spots where we find him in this text today. And so John shows us what it is that Jesus chose, and we find it here in this text. Jesus chose to have his, his, his reputation and his legacy, his public persona. The last image of his, of his public life was not to be known as a teacher, as a pastor, as a healer, but to uh, uh, allow those who hated him the most to write his epitaph. Those who, who hated him the most to decide that his final words would be above his head, that the, the thing that they thought would bring him the most shame, the thing that they thought would bring him the most insult, that was the loss that Jesus chose. And a pluck, a, a strand of his life was taken. We come here to next and, and the soldiers 
who have, who have abused and spit upon Jesus, who have mocked him to his face, now are the heirs of his possessions. They strip him of his clothes, leaving him naked and undignified as they take his possessions and divide them up amongst themselves with utter disregard for the man and the family who was affected. Jesus lost the coat, the cloak, the things that he had laid down so many times to serve others. He laid down again for the sake of taking our curse. Next, Jesus comes and we see here this moment of, of his dear mother. The mother who uh, undoubtedly loved him in ways that no one else had ever had. And, and a person that he undoubtedly loved in a unique way that he loved anyone else. And yet, Jesus here chose not to come down from the cross to be with his mother, but to, but to send her away. To tie her, unite her uh, with his disciple to make sure she was cared from, but to ensure that he wouldn't be the one to care for her. And another strand of his life was plucked away. He hung on a cross. A cross where it's not the, the nails and the bleeding that kill you, but the, but the collapsing of the space in your lungs as, as suffocation set in. As his physical bodily needs, the most essential things he needs, oxygen and water, are deprived of him. And we hear him say, I thirst, because he chose to be in this place. And finally, the text tells us that when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And the spirit and the body were torn from one another because he chose to bear our curse. You see, we would do anything to avoid any of those things. We would go to any length, spend any money. We would run as far as we could to avoid any of those deaths if we could avoid them. But Jesus chose it. Jesus chose to be in that place. Jesus chose to be obedient to the Father, to bear that curse for a reason. And our next two points tell us why. Why did Jesus choose our curse? And our second point is this, that Jesus chose our curse to fulfill our curse. See, after Jesus gives up his spirit, we have this this paragraph, and, and at first it almost seems a little bit strange, right? It, it talks about the soldiers coming to, to, to break the legs uh, of the victim so that they would die sooner, but makes a point to talk about how Jesus' legs were not broken, right? They tell of, of his side being pierced unnecessarily and, and water and blood pouring out of them. And then it gives these two strange quotes from the Old Testament, two strange uh, quotes here. Did you hear him? He says uh, in verse 36, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And I'm reading there going, does it really matter if his bones weren't broken, right? Like he's already dead. What difference does it make? 
But it's interesting is if you, if you look at the bottom of your Bibles and if you look at these little footnotes down here at the bottom of the text, you, you quickly come to realize that this quote was taken not from some prophecy about Jesus, but from the, the, the commandment to Israelites as they had a, a Passover lamb. That when they sacrificed and ate the Passover lamb, that they were not to break any of its bones. And it becomes very clear here that John's intention is to tell us why Jesus chose our curse. And it is so that he could be a Passover lamb. Now that's not very helpful if you don't know the story. You see, back in the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt and they found themselves in a land, in a place that was marked with a curse. That night, the destroyer would come and kill all of the firstborn sons in the land of man and of beast. The, the curse was real. The, the curse was unavoidable. The curse was coming upon them, but there was one way to fulfill that curse other than death. And the one way out from the curse, the one way to satisfy the demands of the curse was to take a, a lamb that was pure and spotless, at least a year old, and to, to sacrifice it and to take its blood and to wipe it on the, the threshold, to wipe it on the doorframe of your house so that when, as the Lord came to bring the curse, that the Lord would pass over those homes. Because seeing the blood, he would know that the curse had already been fulfilled. We here, if we believe in the biblical story and the text, Jesus is coming and, he, and, and John is telling us he is coming to mark us Right, to, to, to fulfill a curse that otherwise would fall upon us. And if we read all of John's writing, we will come at the very end to this book called Revelation. And, and there he will talk about a second death. You see, the, the first death, the, the loss of this life in this earth is, is to John a, a temporary construct. It is a temporary loss, but he warns us that the curse is... Uh, is at its fulfillment. The weight of the curse, the weight of, of our disobedience falls upon us at the end in what he calls the second death. And for John, there is nobody who gets an exception. There is nobody who can avoid the coming of the curse. The curse is coming and the curse will either take and fulfill itself in you. It will take your life in a second death or it will pass over you leaving you into the resurrection of life. To those who, who experience the curse, either the curse will take you and you will be cast into what he calls the lake of fire, or it will be, as he says uh, in verse 6, over, the second, over such the second death has no power. You see, the curse's demands will be fulfilled one way or another. You will either taste the second death or the blood of Jesus will pass over you. And Jesus, we're told, chose our curse so that he could fulfill the demands of it. See, the course, the question for us is who will pay the curse? Does the curse paid for by the Passover lamb, that is Jesus, or will we pay for the curse ourselves? 
But of course, that's not really the choice we often make, is it? It's kind of a, a leading choice, right? Do you want to uh, die the second death and, and experience the alienation of, of body and God and relationships uh, and the world forever, or, or do you not? The question is, is do we believe that the curse is real? Do we believe that this construct that John is laying out for us is what is real? And I'm reminded of, of, a, of a quote of uh, a famous atheist who one, once uh, visited uh, a, a preacher's church, uh, and somebody asked him, well, you don't believe any of this, do you? And he said, no, but he does, right? He pointed to the preacher. If, if we come to this text, and we have to decide whether the, the story that John and Jesus are telling is real or not, because they definitely believe it. Right? John believed that the curse was real, and John believed that the curse could be fulfilled by Jesus' blood because he lived his entire life taking pains to tell us a story. He was alienated from friends. He lived in imprisonment and isolation because he believed that this story was real and that it was for you. Jesus believed that this story, this curse was real, and he believed that his blood could save you because otherwise he would not have chosen the pains and the sufferings and the death that he chose. Jesus believes it. John believes it. Do we believe it? But Jesus didn't just come to fulfill our curse in the end. Jesus came to undo our curse. There's a second strange quote, a quote that almost seems to uh, be irrelevant, right? And it says that, uh, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And if you think about this literally, it like literally says nothing, right? Oh, the soldiers came and, and stuck a spear in Jesus' side, and they looked upon him whom they pierced, right? Uh, obviously, they were looking at him, otherwise they could not have stabbed him. But you see, John is telling us and he is bringing us into a different story from the Old Testament. He's tying us to another point in Israelite's history, but it's not something that happened long ago, but it is, it is a story, a prophecy of what will yet be. He takes us to the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah is foretelling of this glorious day, a glorious day that will be marked by the outpouring of God's spirit, a, a, a day in which the spirit of grace will be poured out, a day uh, when there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It's a day that's marked with mercy. It's a day that's marked with, with victory over enemies and hostile powers who would come and attack them. And that day is marked because the people of Jerusalem will see one whom they have pierced. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced, but quite unlike when they pierced him, they will look and they will see his blood and they will mourn. Mourn, Zechariah tells us, like one has sorrow over an only child. And so Zechariah tells us that in that time when they are finally able to see the, the blood that their hands have, have, have drawn, right? That they would be marked by this great sorrow and this great mourning over what they have done, but they would be filled with great hope. 
for the coming victory. And those two things, the great sorrow over what their hands have done and great hope over the coming victory would lead them into a new life. So we're reminded of Matthew and Mark who said a centurion looked upon Jesus hanging from the cross and said, surely this man is a son of God. But John turns our attention to a different couplet of people. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And he points out to us what no other gospel writers do. He highlights about these men was not their great faithfulness, but the fact that this was their first act of faithfulness in many ways. Right? It tells us Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but he kept it secret because he was afraid of the Jews. Nicodemus, we remember from much earlier in the, the, the story, he, he came to Jesus hidden in the dark of night, right? That no one would see him coming to ask Jesus a question. And Nicodemus, when Jesus told him of an outpouring of the Spirit, of the transformation of the Spirit, Nicodemus left sad, rejecting that hope that was given to him. But in this moment, these men who previously were, were uh, afraid to be known or to be seen with Jesus, in this moment they were willing to go and to be the public faces demanding Jesus be buried and his body cared for. Do you see, in this moment, I think Nicodemus and Joseph realized that they were living half-lives. Because the curse doesn't just come and swoop and kill at the end, but the curse bleeds us in the present. They realize that already the strands of life, the, the, the connections of life to fullness of life, to real life, were already broken and crumpled. They realize that already they were not living uh, the life that they should be living, the, the life that they were meant to be living. They were living in secrecy, in isolation, in hiding, cut off from the people that surrounded them. They lived their lives uh, uh, not promoting the hope of Jesus, which we know they found personally, because uh, they could not live that life and maintain the, their hold on what they thought was good and pleasing. But somehow looking at Jesus on the cross changed that for them. And they realized that the, a strand of their web, the strand of their life was dangling loose in the wind, and Jesus in this moment begins the process of rewebbing their lives. I say this because I think many of us come to this story, and one of the inexplicable uh, conclusions that we will come to is that we are living half lives. Right, strands of our life, things that we ought to be connected in, in relationship with other people, in relationship with God, in relationship with uh, creation and nature. Our relationship with our own selves is broken and it's marred. And especially in this life of, in this moment and this time of, of isolation, right? Many of us are, are finding a, a, a relapse or a reawakening of, of old addictions or, or compulsive behaviors. The kinds of things that make us hide and lie to the people around us. Because we don't want them to see. We don't want them to know what it is that we're doing. And those severed ties of our lives make us realize that our life is like a crumpled up spider's web. Untied and unmoored 
from where it should be. Some of us are experiencing an anxiety that, that, that immobilizes us from being able to work, right? From being able, uh, forget like not having a job. These are people who have jobs, but they can't get themselves to, to do the things that they're supposed to do, right? Their, their ability to, to take care of the world, their, their ability to take care of other people is, is cut off and it's broken because they have lost a strand of their life that leads them away from where they should be leaving. Some of us are experiencing a, a faith crisis of one kind or another. And some of that's a, 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 perhaps a moral failure that is an act of doubt in God's goodness. Perhaps it's an intellectual uh, crisis, right, where you doubt that God could possibly be good in a season of loss like this. Perhaps it's, a, it's an emotional crisis, the kind of crisis where you just don't feel anything towards God. And he seems cold, and he seems distant, and he seems completely unrelevant to your life. And you realize that that which should be tethering the web of your life to your creator, to your maker, to your lover, have been broken, snapped, and severed. And yet we, like Nicodemus, and we, like Joseph, can begin even just by seeing the man upon the cross. Upon seeing the one whom our sins have pierced, we can begin to experience the rewebbing of life, the pouring out of the spirit that Nicodemus rejected at first, that Zechariah promised can be ours in the here and now. Because if we look at Jesus, we will see the great sorrow for where we have been and turn from it. We can see the great hope that Jesus allows his people to access and be changed by it. Because Jesus did not bear this curse to make us a story. Jesus did not bear this curse uh, to, to, to tell a tale of self-sacrifice or confidence. He didn't bear the curse because we were already healthy and put together and we had no need for help. Jesus bore this cross because he knew you were under the curse, that the curse was breaking apart your life, and he wanted you to find life. He wanted you to find life in the end, and he wanted you to find life in the present. You see, the death of Jesus ought to communicate to our hearts that this curse is very, very real if we ever doubted it. The curse which mars and, and snaps and breaks and kills and, and puts to death so many strands of our life and eventually will come and sweep the whole web away from us. This curse is real, but there is also a real way out to those who see the one who was pierced and put their hope in him. To them, he says, the debt can be fulfilled. To them, he says, the damage that we have wreaked in our family, in our life, in our city, those things can be undone or begin to become undone because of Jesus and the era that he ushers in, because the one who was pierced would rise again. The one who was pierced would send upon us a Holy Spirit that would lead us in truth life. You see, Jesus, John tells us to believe. 
because John knows that you and me, John knows that my heart would remain where it was if I was not moved by the one who bore my curse. And so this text is a, is a, is a plead. This text is a call. This text is an invitation not to live with the areas of death in your life, but to find uh, ways to put those death upon the death of Jesus, to find ways to experience uh, the life that Jesus offers, not because you can do something, but because of what God has done for you. The blood of Jesus frees us from the bondage of death. So in short, we could say that Jesus chose our curse so that we might live. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning as people who need to believe that you are true because there is no way to escape a curse if it is not through you. Lord, we know that what you say is true. Convict our hearts of its truth. Lord, lead us into a life of, of submission. Lead us into a life of excitement. Lead us into a life of anticipation that the pains that we feel in this life will one day be no more because the lamb was slain and the curse has been fulfilled. Let us look forward, Jesus, to the happy morning of your resurrection because it promises the happy morning of our own. In Jesus' name, amen.